Topic 16, Third Paper, of 20th Century Negro Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. 20th Century Negro Literature. Topic 16, Third Paper by G. M. McClellan. The Negro as a Writer. The objection is often raised against schools of higher education for the Negro race that these people need instruction not in Latin, history, geometry, and moral science, but in scientific farming and geometric bed-making. The leaven of truth in this assertion makes a plump denial hard to return, while its leaven of error is a reminder of the old anti-slavery assumption that till the end of time the negro must be a hewer of wood and drawer of water, with no mental life to speak of. This error is best confuted by proof of the race's actually wide range of intellectual demands, imaginative sympathies, moral questionings. And for this reason, if for no other, one thanks Mr. George Marion McClellan for venturing on the publication of his verses. This gentleman is a graduate of Fisk University, as he tells us in the interesting and modest preface to his volume. Thus he belongs to the first generation since the war. His parents, he indicates, were slaves, and his early home was upon the highland rim of Tennessee, amid the poverty of a freedman father's little farm. These things well weighed, the refined love of nature, the purity of sentiment, the large philosophy, the delicacy of expression which his poems display are sufficiently marvelous. One must, perhaps, deny him the title of poet in these days when verse-writers are many. His ear for rhythm is fatally defective, while, so far as one may judge from the few dates appended to the poems, the later productions seem not to be the best. Nevertheless, his little volume stimulates to large reviews and fair anticipations. It is a far cry from Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, an articulate stirring of poetic fancy, but hardly more than that, to Mr. McClellan's September Night in Mississippi. Begirt with cotton fields, Anguilicets, half bird-like, dreaming on her summer nest, amid her spreading figs and roses still in bloom, with all their spring and summer hues. Pomegranates hang with dapple cheeks full ripe, and over all the town a dreamy haze drops down. The great plantations stretching far away are plains of cotton, downy white. Oh, glorious is this night of joyous sounds, too full for sleep aromas wild and sweet. From muscadine, 
late-blooming jessamine, and roses all the heavy air suffuse. Faint bellows from the alligators come, from swamps afar, where sluggish lagoons give to them a peaceful home. The katydids make ceaseless cries. Ten thousand insects' wings stir in the moonlight haze, and joyous shouts of negro song and mirth awake hard by the cabin dance. Oh, glorious is the night! The summer sweetness fills my heart with songs. I cannot sing with loves I cannot speak. If many thoughts and feelings such as these lie folded in southern cabins, let us not deny, for their unfolding, the genial influences of literature and history and the sciences. The race that possesses such powers, even though undeveloped in the great majority of its members, needs Fisk and Atlanta-educated pastors and teachers. The pen is mightier than the sword. It would have seemed idle to have said this at the mouth of the mountain pass at Thermopylae, with Leonidas and his immortal Spartan heroes all lying dead amid the wreck made by the mighty host of Xerxes. A century afterward, at Cana, one-sixth of the whole population of Rome lay dead on the battlefield by the sword thrust. Where was the might of the pen to compare with this? The might of the sword at Thermopylae, together with the concluding events at Salamis, turned back the Persian hordes and thereby saved the Greek civilization for Europe. Again, after the blood of Cana at Zama, Hannibal was utterly broken, and Carthage, with her attending civilization, was doomed to everlasting death, while Rome, her mighty adversary, with her eagles and short sword, carried her dominion and her splendid civilization from England to India. One more great movement in the world illustrating the power of the sword is too tempting to pass by in this connection. From the deserts of Arabia, a fanatical dreamer came forth, claiming a new revelation from God and as a chosen prophet to give the world a new religion. His pretensions at first caused his expulsion from Mecca, together with a small and insignificant band of followers. Yet, because of these, it was not long until there came from out of the desert the sound of a marching of a mighty host, heralding the approach of the Arab, the despising and despised. Before these barbarous hordes, the principalities of the East were doomed to crumble and yield up their accumulated treasures of the ages. And so triumphant were these invaders from the desert, they decided to appropriate for themselves the whole world, and from this they were not dissuaded until Charles Martel sent them back from Tours and out of Europe, together with their hateful civilization. 
so it would seem from these and all other mighty movements of races and tribes men and nations the sword has ever been the arbiter yet over all the mighty sweep of events and the stupendous results of the sword thrust throughout the ages comes this insinuating claim the pen is mightier than the sword and when we consider the whole of accumulated philosophy the onward march of science and human thought and the consequent development of the human race the comparative might of the sword becomes insignificant before the less demonstrative power of the conquering pen and here comes the question which in some phase or other comes up in all great questions of america what part has the negro in the might of the pen nobody doubts that the great movements of the world at present let their primary manifestations be military or political scientific or industrial have any other great lever than knowledge and sentiment brought into notice and activity by writers the chief agencies for the dissemination of thought and discoveries are the newspapers magazines literary journals and books of fiction the newspapers have the most immediate and controlling influence over the action of men in the business and political world to undertake to estimate with anything like exactness the part the negro has in moulding sentiment through the press and giving the consequent direction to the action of men would be a task impossible in the very nature of the case it shall be then the purpose of this article to discuss in a general way the negro as a writer in all lines in which he has essayed to express thought it would be easy to dispose of the question in two ways one would be to separate all that he has done as far as that would be possible and put it over against the production of the white race and thus so minimize it by comparison that its power would likely to be underrated another way would be to magnify all that has been done as especially praiseworthy because the production comes from the negro thus overrating its significance forgetting that whatever power any writing can have only be in proportion to its real merit in the thought world regardless of all source from which it came overrating the negro as a writer is more likely to be done in passing on his attempts in literary art than in any other field but in literary lines the number who can command attention and be worthy of notice is very small one does not have to go far to see that the most effective work so far as creating sentiment is concerned and thereby wielding power in the great moving forces of this age the negro as a writer is best evinced by the negro press we have many newspapers and after thirty years we have not been able to produce one single great newspaper 
nor for many good reasons one single great editor who is a power in the land indeed the most of the many papers of ours that come from the press have but little in them that can attract the intelligent minds of the race there is however among us too great a tendency to ridicule the negro press unreservedly and though much of the ridicule may be deserved it remains true that the accumulative power of the negro press is hardly appreciated as it deserves to be they who write for us and fight our battles are essentially our only spokesmen and as ignored as our articles and editorials would seem to be by the white press it is true nevertheless that the white newspapers take close notice of what the negro writers have to say they may not ordinarily deign to appear to take notice but let any publication be made in our most humble sheets that seems to them to be dangerous or too presumptuous to let pass and it will be seen then that the white press takes notice and the power of the colored press will become apparent i have said that we will have not yet produced one single great paper nor one great editor as white papers and editors are great and to this i think there can be justly no exceptions taken for we are lacking in nearly all the accessories to make such greatness possible but we do have a few papers and editors of marked power the two most exceptional papers of power that have come under my notice are the new york age edited by mr t thomas fortune and the richmond planet edited by mr mitchell these two papers and their editors have been and are yet valiant warriors for the race and of incalculable benefit to the race as a terse caustic and biting editorial writer mr fortune is hardly surpassed by any one and his paper for years has been uncompromising in fighting all adverse issues in the race question almost the same thing can be said of the richmond planet and more than any other perhaps has this paper been valiant in waging war against lynching these two papers together with a host of others have set forth the power of the pen and have accomplished far more to offset the adverse sentiment created by the white press than can ever be fully determined there is another class of negro writers than those i have mentioned that gets an occasional hearing in the white papers of the south and is of great value to the race any one familiar with the strictures of the south knows that the negroes themselves have essentially no chance to discuss through the white newspapers the great questions which are ever to the front concerning them and their position in the south and also but very little more in the newspapers of the north 
unless in the South the Negroes write some articles to say amen and highly sanction the white man's dictums and positions on the Negro questions that happen to be up. But there are few who are able to write on some questions in our defense without compromise, and yet so skillfully as not to offend. In speaking of the attitude of the white press, and its representations, it is not assumed that there is no disposition of fairness on the part of the writers of the white press. Many of the great editors mean to be fair from their standpoint. The southern white people are prejudiced and supersensitive on some points beyond all reason, and in all questions between the negro and the white man, as man to man, the assumptions, without an exception, are arrogant beyond all naming, so that it comes about at any point of issue where men differing usually would permit the opponent his views as fitting from his side of the question. What the negro has to say, if he is emphatic and decided, is called impudence. The writer must be skillful, then, to write uncompromisingly, and yet not be of the impudent. There are few men among us who are able to write for the southern white papers with reserve, yet without compromise, greatly to our advantage. Among those few, prominent are Professor G. W. Henderson of Strait University, New Orleans, and President W. H. Council of the College, Normal, and Industrial School at Normal, Alabama. Professor Henderson is a graduate of Middlebury College, Vermont, and Yale Theological Seminary, having taken the fellowship from that institution and studied in Germany two years. His writings show his scholarship and refinement. He has been persistent and valiant in all race matters, especially in educational lines in Louisiana, and his articles, though uncompromising, have from time to time found a hearing and forced respect from the great dailies of New Orleans. President Council is the most widely accepted in the southern white press of all Negroes. On some points of disagreement between the Negroes and the white people, he concedes more to some of the white man's claims than any other Negro who writes. Secondly, he is truly a great man, and has gained his right to a hearing in intelligent sources. As a writer, pure and simple, he is forcible. And while the whole of his attitude may not be accepted generally by his own race, there is no doubt about his uncompromising attitude and loyalty to his own race first and last. And anyone who has followed his articles in newspapers and leading magazines have surely seen that the apparently sometimes too generous bouquet throwing to the white brother is fully offset by the terrible blows given that same white brother for his sins against the negro race this is especially seen in his symposium article in the april number of the arena eighteen ninety nine 
it would be impossible in the limitation of this article to mention the many negro writers who are acceptable in leading magazines and to a greater extent in the great weekly journals of this country only one or two can be mentioned rev h h proctor pastor of the first congregational church at atlanta georgia is a graduate of fisk university and yale theological seminary and he is a young man of exceptional ability as a writer on timely questions but as an article writer is often seen in the outlook the new york independent and such papers above them all is bishop tanner of philadelphia for diction fine style conciseness and logical conclusions one must go far to find his superior in the way of history textbooks on various subjects and scientific presentation not much has yet been done among us mr george w williams the negro historian has done more in that field than any other dr d w culp has written a treatise on consumption and other medical subjects that have attracted attention and favorable criticism it now remains to speak of the writers in literary art in this field there are many who have certainly made praiseworthy attempts and of the ladies who cannot be classed with those who have truly made a place among successful literary artists but whose writing has attracted attention and in character is literary most complimentary things can be said of mrs francis e w harper of philadelphia of mrs fanny barrier williams of chicago of miss edna matthews of new york and of mrs cooper washington d c mrs cooper's book a voice from the south is a work in purpose and execution of decided merit in real literary art perhaps there are only two in the whole race who have reached a place of genuine high rank among the critics namely dunbar and chestnut there are four poets however who have attracted much attention and favorable criticism and of these i will speak in turn it is in order to speak of mr a a whitman first because he appeared first of all and in one particular of excellency he is first of all four his rape of florida is truly poetry and as a sustained effort as an attempt in great lines it surpasses in true merit anything yet done by a negro and this assertion without one qualifying word he failed as a poet certainly mr whitman made attempts in lines in which shelley cates and spencer triumphed and with such mediocrity only possible to him in such a highway what else could follow beyond a passing notice though his rape of florida is a production of much more than passing merit aside from the mediocrity of the work attempted in spencerian lines the man himself in his lack of learning 
in his expressible egotism was derogatory to his ultimate success and his styling himself as the william cullen bryant of the negro race was sickening in the extreme mr whitman died recently but not before he had done all in literary excellence that could be hoped from him it remains true however that he was worthy of a much better place than is accorded him as a negro poet and it is to be regretted that his work is so little known among us ten years after mr whitman paul dunbar came forth as a new singer and got the first real recognition as a poet as a poet pure and simple as a refined verse-maker in all directions mr dunbar surpasses mr whitman by far in the truest significance in the term poet and he is justly assigned the first place among negro poets for many reasons mr dunbar is famous and to enter into any extended discussion of his work in this connection is needless mr dunbar is the first negro to attempt poetic art in negro dialect to speak the truth however it must be said that there is no such thing as a negro dialect but in the bad english called negro dialect mr dunbar has in verse chosen to interpret the negro in his general character in his philosophy of life in his rich humor and good nature and the world knows how well he has succeeded robert burns has shown how the immortal life of all beautiful things can be handed down for all time in dialect but it can scarcely be believed by any one that great poetry can ever be clothed in the garb known as negro dialect but for some pathos and to put the negro forward at his best in his humorous and good-natured characteristics the so-called dialect is the best vehicle and in these lines and these lines only is mr dunbar by far greater than all others out of those lines he is still the first poet whitman not excepted but he is first with nothing like the difference in real merit and the fame he has above all others but in passing from him here is dunbar at his best dialectic and otherwise when de compone's hot day is a time in life when nature seems to slip a cog and go just a-rattling down creation like an ocean's overflow when the world just starts a-spinning like a pickaninny's top and you feel just like a rocker that is training for to trot when your mammy says the blessing and the compone's hot when you set down at de table kin a weary lock and sad and use just a little tired and perhaps a little mad how your gloom turns into gladness how your joy dries out to doubt when de oven door is opened and de smell comes pouring out why the electric light of heaven seems to settle on de spot 
when your mammy says de blessin and de compone's hot when de cabbage pot is steamin and de bacon good and fat when de chitlins is a spillerin so's to show you what dey's at take away your soddy biscuit take away your cake and pie for de glory time is comin and it's proachin mighty nigh and you want to jump and holler though you know you'd better not when your mammy says de blessin and de compone's hot i have hired a lots of sermons and i've hired a lots of prayers and i've listened to some singin dat has tuck me up de stairs of de glory land and set me just below the master's stone and left my heat of singing in a happy aftertone but them words so sweetly murmured seemed to touch the softest spot when my mammy says the blessing and the compounds hot this is not so great a poem as the cotter's saturday night by burns because the spiritual element and the whole scope of the tenderest concerns of the family and of life in that poem are left out of this. But in Dunbar's poem, where only the festival is pictured, the scene is so intensified that one feels the warmth and sees the glow of the evening fire and inhales the appetizing odors of the coming homely cheer, and can see back of these the tender care and ineffable love of the mammy who puts the crowning touch upon her love with the blessing as far as it goes when the compone's hot is great precisely in the same lines that the cotter's saturday night is great mr dunbar has also written a number of novels and short stories it has not been my good fortune to see the stories from dixie but the novels I have bought and read. If there were no Charles Chestnut, Mr. Dunbar's novels would have to be discussed in this connection, and he would have to be put down as the very first Negro novel writer, mainly, however, because there would be no other. But with Mr. Chestnut in the field, no true admirer of Mr. Dunbar will ever discuss the prolific diffusions of his, bearing the name novels, in any connection with Dunbar, the poet. There is only enough space left in this article for the poets, to barely mention the names of Mr. Daniel Webster Davis, of Manchester, Virginia, and Mr. James D. Carruthers, of Redbank, New Jersey, and to give a selection from each and let their poems speak for them as writers. Both of them have received notice in the best magazines, and favorable criticism elsewhere. Both owe their distinction mainly to their work in dialectic verse, which, I fear, is too much like the ragtime music, considered quite the proper dressing for Negro distinction in the poetic art. Here is to de biggest piece of pie by mr davis when i was a little boy 
I set me down to cry, because my little brudder had the biggest piece of pie. But when I had become a man, I made my mind to try and hustle round to get myself the biggest piece of pie. And like in bygone childish days, the world is hustling round to get ourselves the biggest slice of honor and renown. And if I fails to do my best, but stand around and cry, this old world will get away with both the plate and pie. And even should I get a slice, I must not cease to try, but keep a moving fast as life to hold my piece of pie. This rough old world has little use for them that chance to fall, and while you's getting up again, twill take the plate and all. The one more selection from Mr. Davis will show him as a poet outside of dialect. A Rose The rose of the garden is given to me, and to double its value t'was given by thee. Its lovely bright tints to my eyesight is born, like the kiss of a fairy or blush of morn. Too soon must this scent-laden flower decay. Its bright leaves will wither, its bloom die away. But in memory twill linger, the joy that it bore. Will live with me still, though the flowers no more. Mr. James D. Carruthers writes, A Thanksgiving Turkey. Cindy, Reach the ham your back, and hand me dat all almanac. Why land, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, got to get out and make hay. Don't care what the preacher say, we must eat Thanksgiving Day. Use, show, use, use a living. You know why Ma's Hudson lives? Days a turkey da dat gives me a heap of trouble. Some day Hudson gwin to miss that audacious foul of his. I's goin over there and twiz at gobbler's neck plum double. Goin past that to other day, turkey struttin up and say a gobble gobble gobble. Much as ef he mout remark, don't you wish at it was dark? Ain't I tempting? Sigh, you hawk, or else there'll be a squabble. Take and wring your neck right quick, light on you like a thousand brick, and you won't know what befell you. And I went on, yet ever day, when I goes by that away, at foul has too much to say. And I'm tired of it, I tell you. Gone to go this blessed night and put out that turkey's light. And I'll nail him like a cobbler. Take care, Cindy, let me pass. Ain't a gone to take no sass off no man's turkey gobbler. 
and now for the last and the greatest roman of the mall in literary art mr charles w chestnut of cleveland ohio i have never seen him and at present the only personal acquaintance i have with him is a brief letter of a dozen or more lines but mr chestnut revealed by his novels i know well the chief distinction one finds in reading mr chestnut from all other negro story writers so far as there are such is that he is truly an artist and that his art is a fine art secondly and this is of the greatest concern to negroes in any thought of the negro as a writer he is the best delineator of negro life and character thought and feeling of any who has attracted notice by writing it is not possible to give in this connection any quotations from mr chestnut's work that may speak for him but it is fitting in this article to speak of the character of some of mr chestnut's stories and as far as possible suggest the ground and purpose of his fiction perhaps to mention the stories the wife of his youth the wheel of progress and the house behind the cedars would serve best for this occasion there are some situations of the negroes too full of ineffable pity for utterance who has not sat at some time in a negro church and heard read the pitiful inquiry for a mother or a child or a father husband or wife all lost in the sales and separations of slavery times loved ones as completely swallowed up in the past yet in this life they still live as if the grave had received them at such a reading though it was given with unconcern one heard the faithful cry of faithful love coming out of the dark on its sorrowful mission and in this realm mr chestnut tells us of a mulatto boy who marries a woman of negro type and who was old enough for the boy's mother but had at that time youth enough left to make the disparity of age at the time of little objection especially in the times and situation where there was little objection to marriages of any sort but the youth escapes from slavery and in the far north receives education development and culture and in time earns a competence that makes life desirable and opens up vistas to new happiness for the old life is now only a memory of what the new man once was and the new man is on the borderland of new love and marriage befitting all his advancements while the mulatto slave boy the slave girl the black slave wife and the slave connections are left forever behind but in all these twenty-five years the black slave wife is still living still ignorant and yielding all the while to age until she is an old woman but there was one thing that did not yield to age and time and that was her love for her boy husband and what was more her sublime and unwavering faith in the constancy of her yaller sam 
after whom she sends inquiry after inquiry, and year after year tramps from place to place in her search, with faith and love divine ever leading her on, until one day in a northern city, to which place she had finally traced him, she stopped at his very door to humbly inquire of the strange gentleman she saw for her yeller Sam, never dreaming that it was he to whom she spoke, though he knew her, and had to face the bitter tragedy of it all. But Mr. Chestnut's art enables him to take care of so sorrowful a case satisfactorily. The Wheel of Progress touches another phase of pathetic situations arising out of the mixture of people and sentiments in the South. The story tells of an ostracized northern white teacher who, from young womanhood, labors away her life for the Negroes until her age and health reach that degree of disadvantage that her position as teacher once her medium of charity, becomes her only means for a living. In the meantime, the Negroes whom she and others helped to uplift and develop, and to whom, because of race distinction, most all avenues outside of menial labor are closed, except preaching and teaching, had become her competitors. In the conflict that arose over the reappointment of the white missionary teacher and a young negro to the place the pitiful situation is again taken care of by mr chestnut's fine art the house behind the cedars until his latest the marrow of tradition was his most ambitious attempt in this book the story of an octoroon family is put forth in all the pathos and tragedy that is the lot of so many Negroes who belong wholly to neither race. Mr. Chestnut's latest book, The Marrow of Tradition, is a strong and vigorous presentation of the colored man's case against the South in the form of a dramatic novel. This book especially deserves a wide reading among the Negroes, who have none too many friends to plead their cause. Mr. Chestnut, as one truly high-rank novelist among us, ought to have such a hearing among the eight millions that would give him all the advantages of a successful novelist from a financial standpoint as a return for his labor, which is by no means for himself alone. In closing, it is but fair to say, while the artists of high rank among us are few in number, in an article discussing the Negro as a writer, in mentioning names at all, it must necessarily follow that there are very many names not here mentioned that would deserve to be if in such an article as this there were any intention or necessity to mention the whole list of Negro writers who write well and with power in every department of letters. End of Topic 16, Third Paper